Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Attention all personnel. Please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to Space Boffins from European AstroFest 2020 in London. I'm Sue Nelson. And I'm Richard Holling, and we're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Uh, if you've not been to AstroFest, well, you're missing out. AstroFest is a three-day uh, space festival in central London, Kensington, central London. Great speakers. Two days, from- we've just been told. Two. Two. Two days. Two days. It's so good it feels like It feels like, like three, three days. <laughs> okay, two-day festival <laughs> in central London. Uh, great speakers from the uh, world of astronomy and uh, space. Uh, but more than that, there's almost like a astronomer's shopping mall of telescopes and stuff and books and gadgets. Mission and, patches. And mission patches and general space tat. <laughs> well, I'm not sure you can say that. Although that space tat included uh, a couple of years ago a rather expensive telescope that it we ended did. up. Yeah, uh, we've used twice a, twice a year. Yes, coming up on space boffins. Who owns space, and can you buy a bit of the moon? Uh, plus, we'll have the truth about the Truths mission, and we'll be trying not to buy another telescope. Our guest throughout the podcast is Chris Lee, chief scientist for the UK Space Agency. Here's a question, Chris: What is your favourite? astronomical body i'm wearing a uh, a jupiter sweatshirt but i don't want that to sway you oh you always ask these questions <laughs> i would have two answers planets saturn yeah globular cluster though would be my favorite target so m13 or something like that so what is that because tell tell us what that is a globular, a globular cluster, cluster city of stars um orbiting our galaxy something like 100,000 stars inside, and effectively some of the earliest uh, astrophysical objects known to man. Well, we can put that question to our other guest who's with us at the moment, and that is Hubble Project Scientist for the European Space Agency, Antonella Nota. (laughs) It'd have to be an image from Hubble, wouldn't it? Definitely. Uh, Westerdun 2 or any of the young stellar clusters that Hubble has observed. Uh, There is an entire uh, group of these objects which are truly spectacular because if you observe them from the ground, even with the best telescopes, you can resolve some of the stars, you can do some measurements, but with Hubble, you can actually do a full census of the stellar content. And this for astronomers is really, really very important to understand. It's like, you know, counting all the members in your family and discover that you have 40,000 and you have so many newborns. So it 
It's really spectacular, and it is a spectacular image. Now, Hubble was launched 30 years ago. It's hard to imagine it was that long ago. And and there's probably a whole generation now who have no idea that this hugely successful telescope was a complete disaster when it first started. That's why we like to tell that story, because I think it's such an inspirational story of, uh, you know, from failure to what is it, it is triumph. today. To triumph. And, uh, and sometimes it's very hard to remember even those years of the failure. We find that a lot of our young students now, they were born after Hubble had already been repaired. So they don't even know what happened at the beginning. And, and some of them got into astronomy because of Hubble, which is extremely rewarding for us to see that we actually have inspired the next generation of students. I mean, it was the first three years, it wasn't even operational because of the, the, the mirror wouldn't focus, the primary it, mirror. It was operational and it produced limited science, mm. but, but nothing compared to what is being done today, of course. Does, does everything, you know, can you remember how you felt when you got... The first image from Hubble didn't have to be the first one that came out, but the first image that made you just go, wow. There was a collective wow in the room because we had been following the astronauts basically day and time while they were doing their um, repairs. This lasted several days. They were replacing instruments, fixing them, putting, installing CoStar, which was the main corrective or optics corrective device, it was like uh, a thriller, right? You're watching, and you don't know the ending, and it might work, and it might not. And then at the end, when finally the image of M100 came down, uh, there was just a collective wow, and a sigh of relief as well, because uh, we had seen so much work for so many people thinking, you know, how to fix this uh, thing. And uh, the, the fact that they had all succeeded in this, the most amazing international partnership probably ever thought. And some of those images have become, like you say, you know, you, they've inspired people to get into astronomy. They're, they're on people's, you know, screensavers, on their leggings, on their clothing. It's become part of our, our culture now, whether it's the, the Horsehead Nebula or, or, or what have you, you know, the, these have an, it has an impact, doesn't it? Absolutely. We have seen over the year that more and more Hubble images were appearing in the most incredible places. You would expect it, science, you know, science fiction movie, you expect to see a Hubble image in the background. But then advertisement, covers of CDs, covers of electric guitars, it was, they were popping up everywhere. And we started thinking that it was, um, that we really we, we were reaching people at a different level. The connection was deeper than just simply the beauty and the aesthetic of an image. And so we actually started collaborating ourselves with a lot of artists to bring, to broaden this participation even more. And it has been very successful. People are absolutely delighted to see that. What I'm interested in is, as well is how Hubble has changed science fiction Space used to be very black and white. If you look at uh, Star Trek from the 60s, you've just because space is black with some stars. Apart from the planets. And then they come to the planets. And now the new Star Trek, for for want of anything else, or or the the new incarnation of Star Wars, space is all brightly coloured. 
I think we have a role in that. We're guilty as charged. (laughs) We have spent incredible amount of time and effort in really showcasing these images for the public. Not only, of course, there is the scientific value to the astronomers. And so it was interesting this morning that it was referred as to the Hubble palette. But it's, it's really not a palette. It's just associating each wavelength is color. And so when you put it all together, you have a colorful view that is pretty close. If, you, if your eye could see out there, that's probably what your eye would see. So is space really brightly colored or, or not? Well, different chemical elements are emitting in different wavelengths, and that's all you can say, right? Which is like being a fish. Because if you're yeah. a fish and you can see in ultraviolet, then right. the ocean looks very different. We associate ultraviolet with blue-violet, right? Mm. Um, but, you know, when ima- and an image comes down from Hubble in one uh, monochromatic wavelength, it's black and white, of course, and that we associate that color just because we know from the, the electromagnetic spectrum what the color could be. I'd like to discuss the deep field image okay. because... For me, I almost cried when I first saw it. I think because it makes you realise that Earth is a, such a tiny, tiny part of the universe when you see all those hundreds of different shaped galaxies all on one picture, knowing that we can't even be picked out from, from that. So from a sort of philosophical point of view... It's very moving and, and challenging. Did, did, how did that make you feel, Chris? Well, I when think you what always surprises me is people, when they see that image, quite often they think they're seeing stars. But they're not seeing stars, they're seeing galaxies. Um, and, and so, yeah, it was, I think you're right, it was one of those awe-inspiring moments. I mean, people often cite the image of the Earth from the moon as being quite inspirational. But I've also met a lot of people who've seen that image. And, and when it's explained to them that, no, these are not stars, these are galaxies, it sort of really takes them outside of themselves. Does it not sometimes make you feel, in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy... There's, I can't remember what the, the, the device is called, that they put Zaphod Beeblebrox in to give him the entire universe and his place in it. And it's meant to just destroy someone. It does the opposite for him. Does it not make you feel cause so insignificant? Well, it does. I mean, space is big, really big. You, know, you wouldn't believe how mind-bogglingly big space is. Yeah, I mean, very much. Uh, y- you have to understand that. And the amazing thing of the Hubble field is, if you think about it, it's just like a pencil width on the sky. It's not that you're looking at a large area of the sky. You're looking at something that projecting on the sky is the width of your pencil. And it's an area that was actually you know, was really designed because to be the observation because there was nothing in it. So this is what happens when you point a telescope for several, several hours to, into nothing. You see so what would you, you know, there's been so many um, discoveries made by Hubble. What would you say has been its greatest achievement? I think from a purely scientific point of view, probably two. The discovering of the accelerating universe. The universe is not only expanding, but is accelerating. This is something that got Hubble Observation and Nobel Prize in 2011. And then definitely the study on the exoplanets. Because, after all, as we said, when Hubble was designed, astronomers didn't know that exoplanet even existed. And now Hubble is at the forefront of actually studying the atmospheres. Now, we've got 
the next big telescope, James Webb Space Telescope, which has been delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed probably again right mm. now, maybe. Uh, I mean, is, is that going to do even better than Hubble? Is it going to be more exciting than Hubble? It will be phenomenal. And we really, one of our goals as astronomers and educators and outreach people is really to replace Hubble in the heart of minds and of people with the James Webb. I think, you know, just from the pure point of view of sensitivity, this mirror is six meters compared to the 2.4 meters of Hubble. That tells you how much more sensitive the telescope will be. And then we look in a completely different regime, the infrared, which is where a lot of scientific information will come, especially on early galaxies, first stars. Chris, you've, you've worked on, on Hubble, haven't you? Is, in a way, is Hubble's initial failure, which then became tremendous success, going to be incredibly useful for all the UK scientists who've worked on the mid-infrared instrument, MIRI, on the James Webb Space Telescope? It's just like, hang on in there. Yeah, I think you, you have to appreciate that all programs have their ups and their downs. Um, we certainly had that on Hubble. In my case, I was involved in the solar array activities. We, we heard some about that this morning in a, in a talk. Uh, it was very challenging, very difficult engineering. But that engineering has, you know, you always learn lessons. Scientists will always learn lessons from those challenges, and you just have to have the opportunity to put them into practice and to wait. So what can James Webb what will that be able to do? Because you're going to be involved in, with, with James Webb as well. Absolutely. We are counting the days down. And we really hope to see um, James Webb launch in the spring to 2021. People are really working very hard to make that happen. What will that do that Hubble, I know we've said infrared, but what, what will the, the main thing be that James Webb will get that you hope will... So James know? Webb will study the star formation part, the, the birth of stars, galaxies, the early universe, the assembly of galaxies at the beginning of the universe. So this is something that Hubble cannot do. We'll reach out farther away than Hubble has done. So hopefully we'll see the first stars and the first galaxies. Antonella, thank you very much for joining us on stage. Well, as regular listeners will know, Space Boffins is supported by the UK Space Agency. It's an opportunity for us to feature more UK space science and technology, which is always our original plan as a podcast. And the UK Space Agency is backing a new European Space Agency climate monitoring mission called Truths. Now, wait for this. It stands for Traceable Radiometry Underpinning Terrestrial and Helio Studies. Don't let the name put you off. It's designed to give us a much more accurate idea of how much the Earth is heating up. Uh, Truths is conceived by Nigel Fox from the UK's National Physical Laboratory, NPL. And I met up with Nigel as well as Beth Greenaway, head of Earth Observation at the UK Space Agency, at a recent Truths meeting at ESA's centre in rural Oxfordshire. And I asked Nigel how long he's been trying to get this mission off the ground. Just about 20 years. (laughs) 20 years, and it's still not built? It's still not built, but it's now on the path to being built. And in six or so years, we will have not it just built, but launched, operating, and trying to help solve the, the world's problems on climate change. You, know, you must feel passionately about it. Why is it so important? It's important because we have been measuring the Earth for the last 40-odd years from space, yet we've not been doing it with the rigour, 
and the uncertainty that is needed in order to fully understand and quantify the impact of mankind on the planet. It gives, at the moment, there's always that wriggle room for sceptics and deniers to say, oh, but is the data quite right? Is there this? Is there that? We have been needing and trying to build this infrastructure across the globe that says it must be robust, it must have rigid uncertainties, it must be SI traceable so that society policymakers can have confidence in what that data actually means and make a judgment. And the UK has been leading that initiative, not just with MPL, but across the board in many sectors. And if you think about it from um, the point of time, we now all have a standard way of measuring time, and that's what MPL put in place you know, many, many years ago. And so the way I think of this is by putting a standard measurement of uh, radiation from the Earth into space. That, that's what this mission is doing and why it's so unique. So it's like a GMT, it's like the meter, it's, it's like an SI unit in space. That's exactly what it is, yeah. yeah. And it's so phenomenal. We've got the lead scientists and the vast majority of people that are going to build this mission here in the UK. What will it actually do? I mean, how, how will it work in very simple terms? So, so what it does is we have a camera that's measuring the Earth and the Sun, measuring the radiation that's coming into the Earth and the, and the radiation that's reflected from the Earth, completely spectrally resolved, so like, like the colours of the rainbow, the full, the full spectrum. And we're doing that with very, very high accuracy, a factor 10 higher accuracy than we've done before. And the reason we can do it to that accuracy is because we are physically taking the primary standard onto the spacecraft and the calibration system that I have in, in my laboratories in Teddington shrunk it down into a scale that mimics that facility and put it all on the spacecraft. So we, we really are taking MPL into space on board that spacecraft. So is it as simple as the difference between the energy coming in from the sun and the energy leaving the earth and that, that balance between the two? Is it just as simple as getting an, a, an accurate answer for that? That's one aspect of what we're doing. So we have the ability to be able to set a, a benchmark of what that state of the planet is now with the ability in 15 or so years to be able to measure that change. And the reason I say 15 or so years is because that, that change in that balance is what is causes the planet to change. If it, if it goes up, it, it can warm the planet or cool the planet. It can go both ways. What our current observing system is, the accuracy of that observing system means that to be able to detect that signal from this background of noise and, and, and variability, volcanoes happening is going to take 35 to 40 years as a minimum from the best observing system we have. What Truths does is it shrinks that time down to the 12, 15 years. And by doing so, it gives policymakers the ability to make a decision as to when do we build the next Thames barrier? How big do we build it yeah. in, a, in a timely manner? And that's just the radiation budget aspect we're also, but, the, but the radiation budget is what drives all the uncertainty in the yes, climate models. It is. So it's, yeah. what, it's what people see when they see the graphs and they see that envelope around the graphs and say, oh, well, the scientists could have got it, get it wrong. It could, it could warm or it could cool. Actually, what you're doing is, is halving that uncertainty. So there is less room for indecision. So we can start taking action. You know, we, we've all heard David Attenborough last week or this week on we are in a climate emergency. We need to start taking action. There is no excuse for that in action now. Instead of waiting 40 years to act, you, you have 15 years of data. And the other thing that is that Truths won't just take the measurements itself. It will help all other satellites reach a higher standard of, of, of climate quality data. And then that's even existing satellites? 
Absolutely, and, and um, historical ones. historical ones. Yes, yeah, so we will we will have the ability to calibrate targets that have been viewed by other satellites on a regular basis, as they're referenced, the moon, some of the deserts, and put a new absolute uncertainty on those sites, so that sensors that were launched ten or twenty years ago can have their data recalibrated, re-updated, so we can start that climate record that little bit earlier and start to get this knowledge base much, much, much better. And, and, and as Beth says, we can upgrade the Earth observing system, which is not really being built for climate, into a climate observing system. Now, it's called TRUTHS, which is a slightly tortured acronym, if you don't mind me saying so. It and maybe it should be called TRUST, because it's all about trust, <laughs> it isn't is it, at the end it of the is. day? It is trust. It is trust. It's, yeah, you're right. It's about putting trust and confidence in data and information that comes from that data so that society and policymakers can really believe in what it's telling them. That doesn't mean it will tell them the, how, to you know, how to act and make the decisions, but it will give them that, that confidence to say, I can trust this and therefore I can make a decision that is going to impact billions of people ultimately as part of their, of their future But it's also about making sure that what we're doing and even the things we're doing now are having impact and having the right impact because we need to have a a good reference baseline in order to know that the carbon mitigation strategies we're doing are actually having the impact that we are hoping for them to have. We need to have that that reference plane. We're we're one of the first countries to go for the zero carbon economy by 2050. There are a lot of people pushing for big action by 2030. But we need to know, we need to show progress. Nigel Fox from NPL and Beth Greenaway from the UK Space Agency. And we'll keep you posted on the Truth's mission as it hopefully progresses. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and share your thoughts on the podcast. Nice thoughts. Yeah, Anyone we... got any thoughts on the podcast? Yay, thank you. Yeah. I was going to say, you can't see a thumbs up on radio, <laughs> sir, but I do appreciate the, uh, the, the gesture. Um, now, the space industry isn't always about scientists and engineers. It also employs people in, in different areas. It could be communications, event planning, and increasingly law and policy, not least because Space Force aside, dozens of satellites can now be launched at the same time. SpaceX, as you probably know, recently launched 60 new Starlink satellites, for instance, and not everyone is happy about it either. Well, our next guest will hopefully be able to shed some light on the evolving ownership of space. Uh, Professor of Space Law and Policy at Northumbria University, Chris Newman. That's a great title, isn't it? That, that, lean, that was a lovely lean welcome. Yeah, that I know. That's great. Let's lean into the microphone a little bit more. That's a great title you've got there. I know, I know. It, it sort of happened by accident as well. I, you know, I, I found myself working and researching chaotic constitutions. And, of as course, as, 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 as us constitutional lawyers do. And perhaps the most chaotic, or certainly the newest, is that of outer space and the work and, and the activity that humans are doing up there. Now, we mentioned, as you mentioned, the constellations. I mean, can anyone launch anything? Is that, is that the bottom line? 
In order to think about the legality of a launch, we've got to go back to the, to, to the heat of the space race in 1967, where the United Nations got together, they formed, well, in 1958 it was actually, they formed a group, the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, which decided on, on all sorts of broad policy and, and information sharing and scientific and technical, and one of the subcommittees they had was legal to think about these issues. Space law, I often tell my students, space law is actually one of those unique areas where there was quite a bit of discussion about it before the activity actually happened. You know, we have, we have discussions of, of activity in the ether in 1911. So we, we, we've already had a, a sort of a, a philosophical thought about what, might, you know, what we might do in space, but it was actually the doing of it that led to the laws. So 1967... You know, we're right before the moon landings. And in 1967, historically, we didn't know who was going to win that race. So they decided to institute a security treaty. That's what we got. We got the Outer Space Treaty. And that forms the, the central trunk, if you like, of space law, of what we do as a species in outer space. And has everyone signed up to that? Um, a hundred and odd nations, 108, 109, I haven't got the exact figure in my head, but around about that, it's, it's been accepted by all the major space powers. And so, yes, I would say it's got broad acceptance. But as, as we know, what happened in 1967 is, is totally different to sort of what, what's happening today. Nobody, I suspect at that time, would have foreseen that you could have nanosatellites and CubeSats and 60 at a time being launched. So... You know, is there no reining in of any commercial space company putting up hundreds of satellites at a time, regardless? And, you know, it's Astrofest here, lots of telescopes being sold out there, astronomers complaining about it ruining the, the night sky. Have they got no recourse? This is, this is it now. This is the future. This is the way it's going to be. Okay. I'm going to be honest with you here. <laughs> I'm a bit of a fraud. Right? <laughs> Space law is that one treaty, but it's not really a law. It's a statement of principles rather than an actual binding law that we would understand. The real law is on the domestic level. It's the countries that are now deciding the contours of what their activity looks like. Okay? So that means that if the US, for example, has a law that says you can launch dozens and dozens of satellites, that's absolutely fine. That's, that's where we're at, yeah. Which brings us on nicely to you, Chris, because, you know, the UK is in the process now of... He's of, not launching dozens of satellites. No, you're not no, launching, yeah. personally <laughs> launching dozens of satellites. But, you know, on behalf of the UK Space Agency, you know, this is where the UK is going to go, having its own spaceports, having its own commercial launches. I know that the, 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 the agency is, obviously has to look at the, the legal side of this as well pretty, pretty carefully. Yeah, the space agency has lawyers, um, surprisingly. Certainly was a surprise to me when I first got involved. Just coming back on what you were saying with, with Chris just then, uh, first of all, a shout-out to Robert Massey at the Royal Astronomical Society. We had our first meeting yesterday uh, with a community uh, who were very interested in understanding the issues of uh, the SpaceX launches. ESO were there, we had SKA, the Square Kilometre Array community were there, we had SpaceX and OneWeb there as well, so we can start to explore, because as Chris has absolutely said, it's a it's, a, it's not a legal rule for some of these activities. They're guidelines. They're uh, rules of the road, if you like. And so even in the UK Space Agency, what we have to focus on is, is what is actually the regulation? What's the legal position? 
One area that's been pretty well defined has been radio frequency uh, violations and so on. So, you know, you have to have access to spectrum in orbit before you can uh, use it. So you have to go through the, uh, the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, and establish your right to use frequency. What we're finding in the optical and radio astronomy side, however, is that they've never thought through that issue themselves because the pace of technology change has been so fast that the legal rules just simply haven't kept up with it. We are working with the United Nations who are still arguing about the definition of where does space actually start, you know, 100 miles or 100 miles plus one. So, you know, the UN will take a long while to address this at the time of entrepreneurs like Elon Musk who are just simply putting their programs up on orbit. This is one of the problems, isn't it, uh, Chris Newman, in terms of the, uh, the technology is outpacing. I mean, it's one thing in 1967 where things were moving slowly. I mean, now it's just so fast. This isn't a problem unique to space. We've got cyber, we've got artificial intelligence. There are a number of, of areas of research doing exactly, answering these questions. And I think what we've got here is, it sounds like it's a problem, but actually it's a good thing. We're having a discussion about it. We're talking about it. We're establishing values. We, we, we've gone from zero to, you know, to 60 in a matter of decades. No other legal system does that. So we've got to decide what our values are, what our red lines are, what do people want to do. But you can't. You, you said yourself it's a set of values. I don't think you can, with all these launches happening, rely on what is effectively, sounds to me, like a gentleman's agreement. You, you can in some sense. I've seen examples in the international telecommunications process where some countries have tried to go against some of the legal positions. And what basically happens is the other nations, they, they turn their back on that commercial company. I mean, they literally turn their back on them. They won't let them have landing rights for the ground stations, and they effectively put them out of business. So there are rules of conduct that we all recognise will be needed, and what we do find is that those companies companies who are engaged in this they want good PR and actually they're not there to damage uh, and they need to work and they will work step and step so, with so us. So do you think SpaceX then will be reined in by public opinion because I, I can't I, I see don't that think they need to, I don't think they need to be reined in by public opinion what they need to be is reined in by the national requirements of the of the organizations that they're dealing with we've got to do more work to work out what does that mean I mean SpaceX are actually meeting all the tests they need to make it's for us to turn around and say, well, we've not been as quick as we could be in identifying what new tests we might want to put on them. And I really do believe that if we did provide those tests, they would then step back a bit and perhaps have another think and then would look at a different regime. Now, Chris Newman, can I ask you, let's move on from space. You're talking here about um, who owns the moon. Yes. Is there an easy answer to that? There is. Oh, great. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. And it is? I own it. Okay. What? I own it. How? And you own it. Okay. And everybody here owns it. It's what we call res communis. Yeah. It's communal. Every, it's owned by oh, everybody. Yeah, but that never works, does it? Well, it's worked with the moon. <laughs> Until because now. I own it and yeah, you own it, yeah. you see. The, the, thing, the thing about res communis, it's almost a statement of, a, we're back to this statement of principles. It's not enforceable, for sure. But then again, occupation isn't likely. We're not looking at occupying forces there. What we're looking to establish is a normative baseline for our behavior out there. And if we start from it belongs to everybody, the conversation will develop along those lines rather than if we're merely exporting national interests and national prejudices and legislation out there. So, yes, I mean, in a sense, you're right. That's, that's a meaningless phrase, but actually it's full of meaning. 
because what it tells us is that this is a communal resource. And, and I guess it's in every space agency, every commercial operator's interest is going to operate on the moon to work together in the same way that nations cooperate in space at the moment, but also in Antarctica, for instance. Because, I mean, you know, unless there is something really valuable on the moon, that it's not going to be a problem anyway, is it? We're back, we're back to exactly what Chris was saying, that you know, normative behaviour and nudging states in the right direction, it really does work. I, I, I've got to give a shout-out to the UK Space Agency. We, the UK is really trying to be a responsible regulator. It's trying to show what good looks like. You know, sometimes it might get it wrong, sometimes it might be slow to respond, but it's, it's heading in the right direction. And that's really all we can do in that respect. I mean, do you think we're going to actually see uh, moon colonies, a moon village, as uh, Jan Werner, the head of the uh, European Space Agency, was talking about, you know, this idea, actually, lots of operators on the moon, lots of people on the moon? One of the things you always get is, is oh, there's many legal problems, there's many... Legal problems aren't going to stop it if there is a will for it to happen. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think if there's a will and the desire and the funding, it's going to happen. I think one of the issues for me is understanding the subtleties. I mean, people say at the moment, for example, in the legal situation, there is no law of the oceans. Uh, you can go and fish. You don't actually necessarily own the ocean in order to fish. So you're going to get entrepreneurial groups who say, we don't want to own the moon, but we want the right to exploit the moon. Uh, and I don't think that's going to be a problem unless it has impact on others, if it's going to impact on science, if it's going to impact on society. There is potentially, though, going to be a bit of a land grab going on because, like with most things, like if you think of the early forms of exploration, it was first come, first rights claimed. So if you've got Space Force for parts of, of space, if you've got countries, lots of countries now aiming to you know, go to the moon and put uh, crewed missions on, on the moon and, and what have you, what is to stop countries saying, well, we're there, this is ours now? Sort of similar to divvying up Antarctica, which and I know Antarctica is always brought up as a sort of role model for how maybe the moon might, you know, might yeah. be divvied up, so to speak. Yeah. I think, firstly, we're not going to escape without conflict. What that conflict's going to look like, we don't know. It might just be a dispute between a country. It might, you know, it's not going to, we're not necessarily heading inevitably towards Star Wars. So there's going to be conflict. There's going to be disputes. And this is the role of space law. This is the role of space policy to try and mediate and arbitrate those disputes. We can't, you know, we can't impose enforcement mechanisms like a space police. You know, it, that's not going to work. So instead what we have to do is what we do in every other area of international law. And we use soft diplomatic pressure. We use incentives. You know, if you, if you play the game with us, we'll help you and we'll facilitate what you can do. Those are powerful tools in international politics and they do work. Are, are they still powerful international tools, soft diplomacy? Because sometimes it feels like we're in a w world where whoever speaks loudest wins. I think there's always that sort of perception, but actually it does work. And, and if you look at the work of the UN, if you look at the work of, of the European Space Agency, if you look at the work of all of these collaborative bodies, we've got people who 50 years ago were at war with each other and now collaborating in space with each other. So the temptation is to look for the, look for the, for the darker side, but actually I think there is also cause for optimism there. Chris? I think the concern I would have is not quite in that regard. I think there's a lot of talk, but the reality is technology is going to take us a long time yet. Where I'm a little bit more concerned is, for example, if we're looking at planetary protection issues, where you know, we intellectually want to make sure that planets are protected if there is a potential source of life. 
but a commercial company might want to simply go there for some PR purpose or for, for some trivial purpose and in the process damage that legal protection that we ascribe to that particular planet. Now, that's not going to be about you know, commercialization or anything in the near term, but they just might play fast and loose with what are not legally enforceable positions in terms of planetary protection, but where, again, it comes to Chris's point about a common good. There, I think we're going to have to work a lot harder to make sure that these organisations don't perhaps have that opportunity. So a bigger concern for Mars, less so for the Moon, where we know there's, there's no life. Yeah. So if we just come back to the Moon, which is, seems to be the immediate... Oh, sorry, just let me come back a bit yeah. on the Moon. Uh, you know, we had the situation with Israel where, the, you know, it turns out they had tardigrades. Uh, on board. Now, I'm not really sure that was really discussed amongst the community. It was rather surprised to, to find out about it. Okay, the moon doesn't have the same planetary protection rules, but I wonder whether they would have gone through that process even Act- if it had planetary protection. So actively taking life to the moon yeah. that's, not, that's not, uh, not human life. Uh, can, though, Chris Lee, scientists and the commercial operations coexist on the moon? Are you going to be happy when you're sitting in the moon village looking out at the the commercial operations in your retirement flat on the moon? Yeah, Yeah, I I see no reason why not. Um, I'm a little bit more sceptical about the pace of time, the time frame for that. But no, in reality, it it happens in all other areas. I don't see why it'd be any different. Chris Newman? I think we've already seen in, in, in space exploration over the last few years, we've seen commerce, we've seen the military and we've seen scientists sit together. So I don't see any reason why that can't continue. I think we're only going to have Chris's on the podcast in future. I think that works really well. <laughs> Chris and Newman and uh, Chris Lee, and of course our earlier guest, Antonella Nota. Thank you all very much indeed. Space Boffins is supported by the UK Space Agency, and we'll have more on the UK in space, as well as from afar next month. Do follow us on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Uh, Say nice things on your podcast platform. Will you all say nice things about us, having heard us? (laughs) It's a bit ambiguous, I think, that. (laughs) From European Astrofest 2020, thank you for coming in the audience here, and thanks for listening.